Exodus 24, and we're going to read the whole of the chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the laws and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his assistant, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Well, some people love them. Other people are fine coping without them. But whatever you may think about them, closing ceremonies are usually a really spectacular event. Uh, when I were a lad, you would look forward to seeing a magnificent fireworks display, but now everything's gone on to another level. Uh, now we don't just do firework displays, we have drone displays that get incorporated into this massive event that explodes across the top of the stadium. You get these huge inflatable things that get bounced all the way through the insides as big singers are performing their greatest hits. And if it's an Olympics or a World Cup, the, the baton gets ceremonially passed on to the next host. Closing ceremonies are spectacular events. And in many ways, Exodus 24 is the great closing ceremony of the Mosaic Covenant. We've been working our way through this covenant since chapter 19. And parts of this ceremony in this chapter are so big, they make... Does anybody remember um, the closing ceremony in the Bird's Nest Festival, uh, in the Bird's Nest Stadium in Beijing? Remember how enormous that was? Well, this makes that look small. You've got all of the Israelites stood there at the foot of a mountain, and for an entire week, a mountain is set ablaze with the glory cloud of God. This is not um, 
I've sometimes justified doing something in our marriage by saying to Hannah, darling, this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I don't know how many other people have used their lines. Um, This is a once-in-history event. That's the kind of scale that we're talking about in this chapter. But this ceremony actually is quite different to some of our closing ceremonies and a lot similar to the closing ceremony of ancient Near Eastern covenants. And we don't connect with those quite so well, which is why I started uh, in Beijing. But if you were to go a number of thousands of years before, there were regularly nations entering into covenants with one another, and especially a more powerful nation entering into a covenant with a less powerful nation. And at the end of that ceremony, once they'd agreed all of the details, they would have a closing ceremony that would pretty much always look like the same kind of thing. You would repeat the details of the covenant so everybody knew what the terms of the deal were going to be. And then you'd have some kind of sacrifice. And that sacrifice was symbolic of what would happen if either of the parties broke the terms of the covenant. And having reminded yourselves of the terms of the covenant and what would happen if you broke them, then, because this was actually about bringing nations together, then you celebrated that new togetherness with a covenant meal. And that is what is happening in Exodus 24. God is formally ratifying or confirming or whatever formal legal name you want to use the covenant that he has made with his people And as the Israelites are taken through this closing ceremony in chapter 24, God reminds them of the three C's. He reminds them of the cost, their calling, and the consequence. This covenant is costly. We're going to work through the detail and see the enormity of the shedding of blood. It costs to be in this covenant. And that covenant placed a calling, a demand on the lives of the Israelites. They weren't then just free to do whatever they wanted. God demanded their obedience, not just some of the time, but all of the time. And that calling, cost calling, that calling was worth it, even though it was really costly, because of the consequences of the covenant. If you kept this covenant, you could worship the one true living God. That's why we today spend time studying this covenant for ourselves. Yes, I know there are lots of things that are different, and we're going to get to those differences as we work through this chapter. But Israel's experience at Sinai shows us how to have a right relationship with God, and that's something all of us need. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus on verses 1 to 11. Uh, If you look at 12 to 18, they are starting to prepare us for the next big section in Exodus where God gives his people the stone tablets, which are the official record of the covenant, and then all the instructions about how to build the tabernacle, and that takes you all the way to the end of Exodus in chapter 40. And after this morning, we're going to pause Exodus. We're going to have Christmas for a number of weeks. And then, God willing, unless Jesus returns, and all of these plans are subject to the fact 
that we may not need to, to gather again in the new year because Jesus might be back. But if he doesn't return, we're going to pick up the rest of Exodus in our evening series. So if you're not regularly with us in the evenings and you've enjoyed Exodus, now is a great time to think about coming regularly to our evening services. But for this morning, I want you to see three wonderful truths that come out of the closing ceremony of the Mosaic Covenant. Number one, a covenant relationship with God makes worship possible, but only as God prescribes. A covenant relationship with God makes worship possible, but only as God prescribes. Andy mentioned at the beginning of our service that this whole chapter is all about worship. And and that's exactly right. If you look in verse 1, we're reminded all of this covenant was designed, verse 1, for them, you are to worship. But in Moses' day, all of the Israelites weren't able to do that in the same way. It was a select group, a, a group of representatives who were unable to draw near to God and and offer the sacrifices to God on behalf of everybody else. And all of those boundaries, all those restrictions, were intended to show God's people his holiness. And those boundaries became the pattern for worship throughout the whole of the Old Covenant. Now, I'm a simple person when it comes to drawing, so if you'll forgive very, very simple pictures. If you read through verses 1 and 2, what we've got looks a bit like this. Okay, So you've got all of the nation of Israel. They're at the bottom. They're not even on the mountain. They were forbidden from entering onto the mountain. And then you've got uh, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders. They're partway up the mountain. And then you've got Moses who is alone allowed to draw near to God at the top. Um, What I had not clocked before this week was how that is to be a pattern of how God's people are to worship throughout the whole of the Old Covenant. So visually, I appreciate it's a 2D drawing, visually, if you were to flatten Mount Sinai, actually what you have is exactly the same staggered worship all the way through both the tabernacle and the temple. You get into either of those two buildings, and what have you got? You've got the high priest, who's the only person who's allowed to go into the most holy place. That's that square bit right in the center here. And then you've got the high priest. They're allowed to go into the holy place. And then you've got the rest of the nation of Israel, or when you get into the temple, it staggers out even further, who aren't allowed to go any further in. And I, I hope like many of you, I can remember when I was in Sunday school, I can remember being taught that in God's kindness, when the Jews were on their pilgrimage to get to the promised land, God gave them a tabernacle, which is like a portable worship center, in order to worship him. And then when they got into Jerusalem, God enabled them to build a physical permanent temple so that they could do the same thing but in one place for good. So in my head, the temple was patterned after the tabernacle. What it has taken me in my Christian life until this point to realize is that both the temple and the tabernacle are patterned after Sinai. This is the foundation for how God's old covenant people would worship him. 
This, this covenant ceremony that we're talking about here was a unique event, but it established the pattern for worshipping that would be true for the whole of the Old Covenant. Very, 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 very few would be allowed to draw close to God himself. A slightly few more would be able to offer sacrifices, and those select few would be offering the sacrifices on behalf of everybody else. And all of it was done exactly as God prescribes. Now, if you were on the bottom of that great crowd looking on into the mountain, there would still be commands that you would have to follow. It's just you wouldn't be able to draw right close into the worship. And, and that's what happens in the next few verses. So everything God's commanded in verses 1 and 2, that's going to take place from verse 9. But in between times, Moses goes back down the mountain and he tells all the people the commands that apply to all of them. So the worship is for a select few on behalf of all the others, but godly living is everybody's responsibility. And that's what Moses goes and does. So verse 3, he repeats to them the Ten Commandments. We've seen that um, when those commandments were introduced, they were introduced with a specific word, the words, the ten words. So that's what we're told Moses tells them. He reminds them of the ten words, and then he goes through the laws. That's the explanation of how to put the Ten Commandments into practice in ordinary life. We've called it the Book of the Covenant because of this passage. And Moses does what any closing ceremony of an ancient Near Eastern covenant would do. He reminds them all of the detail. So nobody's left in the dark. This is, this is your cooling off period. Are you absolutely sure you know the terms of this covenant? And all the people said, verse 3, same wholehearted response that they'd made back in chapter 19, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Now, when you think about it, there are many things that are similar today to what we have just been thinking about how you worship God. Um, new, new covenant Christians, that's who we are, still have prescribed ways that God has given for us to worship him. We, we're not all free as Christians just to make up our own idea of how we're going to worship God. God has given us specific principles to put into practice. At the same time, you think about all of the good laws that God has given his people that apply to us today as much as they did thousands of years ago. All of those things remain true. But I'm sure I'm not the only person in the room who reads through all of this and thinks, actually, the biggest thing that jumps out of me is all the differences. For thousands of years, all of God's people had this pattern of worship that reinforced how serious it is to worship God. Because he is holy. They got increasingly used to the idea that I'm not allowed to just come near and worship God. Other people have to do that for me on my behalf. I've got responsibilities to obey, but it's only those people who can really worship God. When Jesus fulfilled all of that old covenant and ushered in the new covenant, he abolished and destroyed all of those barriers. So if you're a Christian here today, you have free access 
to draw near to and worship the God of heaven. And I hope every single person in this room knows that. But do you know what a privilege it is? For thousands of years, God's chosen people, the vast majority of them, were kept away. They had to have other people make those sacrifices, make that representation, draw near to God on their behalf because he was too holy and they couldn't draw near. Now, in all the period of time that's passed, God hasn't changed. God doesn't change. God can't change. He's still the holy, holy, holy God. And yet in Jesus, every single one of us is called to come near. Now, I needed to be reminded of that this week because I think in my heart, it is all too easy for worship to just be taken for granted and to be treated lightly and for me not to remember how different our experience now is compared to all of the Lord's people before. It's a staggering privilege. And the second thing we need to see is that a covenant relationship with God requires the shedding of blood. That's the focus in verses 4 to 8. If we were in the middle of one of these ancient Near Eastern covenants, this is the bit where they would make a sacrifice that would remind everybody, if you broke the terms of the covenant, this is what's going to happen to you. So in Moses' case, what he does is he builds, well, first of all, he builds an altar to make a sacrifice on. That's representing God's presence. And then he builds these 12 stone pillars to represent the tribes of Israel. And what he's going to do next is going to need a load of help. So in verse 5, he sends young Israelite men out to go and collect animals and help offer all the sacrifices that need to be made in order, well, you know what's coming next, to shed and sprinkle blood over the entire nation. Now, um, in our day and age, we don't often talk about these kinds of sacrifices. And it's necessary for us to understand what they mean if we're to understand how significant all of this is. So the first one is a burnt offering. And if you're familiar at all with any of the Bible's stories, perhaps the most powerful story in the Bible that will help you understand a burnt offering is when Abram was commanded to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Now that's staggering to our ears to hear. When it was first commanded of Abraham, his reasoning was this. I know that God has given me this son and that he is going to be part of God's plan to grow his covenant. So I know that even if God were to ask me to kill my son, he would bring him back to life so I can trust God. Abraham therefore took his son up to the mountain and was about to slay him. And just at that moment, God says, stop. I now know, and this is how we understand what a burnt offering means. I now know that you were willing to do everything. The words that God said were, Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld me your son, your only son. That's part of what it means to have a burnt offering. In one sense, the whole thing is consumed because it is paying for, it's atoning for sin. It's also a sign of nothing being held back. 
And that's exactly what the Israelites have just said. They've just said, having heard all the terms of the covenant, everything the Lord has said we will do. So that's the two aspects of the burnt offering, okay? It's paying for the price of sin, but it's all consumed because it's a symbol of the fact that you hold nothing back. And because you're willing to serve God with all of your life, having had your sin dealt with, then you can enjoy the peace offering, the fellowship offering. That one doesn't get burnt and cremated on the sacrifice, on the altar. That one is cooked. And then the parties who've just entered into this covenant enjoy that sacrifice together. It's the covenant meal food. And that's exactly what's going to happen in verse 11. But before we get there, Moses emphasizes the importance of the blood in sealing the covenant. Now, the way that he's structured this passage makes that really, really clear. We sometimes talk about chiasms, sandwiches, the main important things in the middle. Well, all of that is what you see as you work through this text. Because actually, there's a very clear pattern that shows us that what's right in the heart of this passage is the sacrifice and the blood ceremony. But you don't even need to analyze the passage and work out how it's all structured. Moses makes it really clear. If you look in verses 6 to 8, with three uses of the verb took. So after the sacrifice has been made, verse 6, Moses took, first use, half of the blood and splashed it against the altar. The most important purpose of the blood was to satisfy the just judgment of God. That's why its first use was to cover the altar. And it showed God's people that that just judgment of God against their sin had been dealt with. Second took is in verse 7. Moses didn't then just rush off and sprinkle the people. There's a bit in the middle. Second took. It takes time to remind the people of the words of the covenant that they have entered into. This is not a free ride for the Jews. This is a covenant full of commitments and obligations. And they said, verse 7, they're all in. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And having heard their willingness, verse seven, third, sorry, 8, the third took, Moses took the rest of the blood and he sprinkled it on the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord made with you in accordance with all these words. Do you see how important the blood is? Blood shows us the cost of being made right before God. It symbolized the life of an animal that had to be shed in order for God's forgiveness to be possible. But it's also a picture of the the life and death stakes that are an issue with this covenant. If you keep the covenant, the blessing is life and all of the other blessings that follow. If you break the covenant... The curse of the covenant is the shedding of blood and death. Now, God only made that covenant ceremony with Moses once. You only have one closing ceremony, which some pop artists need to be reminded in all their repeat final gigs. But you only have one closing ceremony. But what is set in pattern now is repeated again and again 
and again and again, all the way through the history of the Old Covenant. Because God's people are going to continue to sin. And in response to their sin, God's judgment would fall upon them had they not offered a sacrifice. So all the way through the Old Covenant, you've got this visible reminder of the cost of being a part of the covenant. It was costly. It was bloody. And the sacrifices were made over and over and over again. Now, if you are new to Emmanuel, you'll be very pleased to know we do not offer any sacrifices. But that is only because Jesus has died in our place. It's the only reason we are not still doing exactly this. Because we're in the same problem that the old covenant Jews were in. We're still, by our nature, sinful people. We can't rush into God's holy presence by ourselves. We need to deal with this sin problem. And it is only because Jesus came to give his own life and his blood and enter a new covenant that all of that has been fulfilled. It wasn't all that long ago that we were working our way as a church through the book of Hebrews. Um, And in that book, we read these lovely words. Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. How much more then? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? That's what we want to do as Christians, isn't it? We want to serve the living God. And one of the things that really struck me afresh this week is that all too often I rush past the New Testament parallel of the burnt offering, and I go straight to the peace offering. By which I mean, I'm very quick to jump to the wonderful hope and the reassurance of the fact that because of Jesus, I am forgiven. And I can draw near to God through the work of the Son of God, with the help of the Spirit of God, I can enjoy a wonderful relationship with the Father of God. And all of that is wonderfully, wonderfully true. But God has always commanded his people not to hold anything back from worshipping him. And the Old Covenant Israelites knew that because of the burnt offering. God made that clear all the way from Abraham, all the way through the Mosaic Covenant, But it didn't stop there. Jesus made that clear to his followers when he commanded them that if they wanted to follow him, they had to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. Paul makes that abundantly clear. You only have to read through his life story, let alone read his letters, to see that the same principle applies. How many of our struggles as Christians are because I, we, 
stubbornly refuse to give up everything for God? How much of the fact that we are lukewarm and indifferent in our Christian life is because we're holding on to sins that we will not let go. If we're to serve the Lord, we can't hold anything back. And the only way that any of us will joyfully, willingly, continually give up everything is by fixing our eyes on Jesus. For who is he? He is the one who gave up not only the eternal splendor of heaven that is rightfully his, but his own life on the cross to save people like you and me. Thirdly and finally, Moses shows us that a covenant relationship with God brings us into a living relationship with him. The, the remarkable climax to all of this ceremony isn't actually the thunder and the fireworks at the very end of the chapter. It's this remarkable fact that Moses, Aaron, Nahab, and Abihu see God and eat and drink with him. And this little reference in verse 10 that they, sorry, verse 9, that they saw the God of Israel is not very easy to understand. So Moses is going to say a little bit later in chapter uh, 33, or God is going to say to Moses, you can't see my face for no one may see me and live. You get into the New Testament and one of the apostles, John, tells us in his letter, 1 John 4, no one has ever seen God. So we've got to hold Exodus 24 in tension with Exodus 33 and 1 John 4 and other passages. How do we do that? Well, if you're a, a critic, you would say the Bible contradicts itself and there's proof for you. I don't think that's the best way or indeed the only way to respond to that. I think we need to see that what this small group saw was something of the glory and the majesty and the splendor of God's without beholding the fullness of it or seeing him face to face. And actually, when you look at verse 10, that's kind of implicit in what they remember. What they describe isn't having seen every part of God as though they possibly could. What they describe is a glimpse of his feet, and God doesn't have literal feet. God the Father is spirit takes upon himself various forms as a person in order to be understood in these rare occasions where he's describing seeing something of himself. But what's the focus still? It's not even the feet. It's the pavement beneath. Perhaps so awestruck were these people to have but a glimpse of the glory of God that they were prostrate before him. And what they really focused on was how stunning was but the pavement beneath the feet of God. The honest answer is we don't know exactly what they saw, but they saw God and, verse 11, they lived to tell the tale. God spared them so that they could enjoy this covenant meal. And that was the climax to the closing ceremony of all the ancient Near Eastern covenants. You remind yourself of the terms, you go through the sacrifice, and then you enjoy the privilege of that togetherness that comes from being a part of this covenant. And here's God enjoying fellowship with his people. Mm. 
not all of them. I want you to keep feeling that tension. God is doing something truly remarkable in, an, in having a meal, as it were, with these representatives of the nation. But the picture here of God dwelling with his people and being so closely united to them that he's fellowshipping with them, that's going to echo all the way through God's unfolding story. So, hundreds of years later, God promised through Isaiah that this privilege would one day extend to all the nations. Here's Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Here is God promising that the blessings that were enjoyed not even by all of his rights, but by a few representatives of them, would one day be enjoyed by all the nations. And what we are going to do this morning is the first fruits of that promise being fulfilled. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the old covenant and ushered in the new covenant. That's what he explained to his disciples when um, he shared the Lord's Supper with them for the very first time. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. No longer the blood of the covenant, now it's my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was about to shed his own blood in order to fulfill all of the Abrahamic covenant and all of the Mosaic covenant and bring in the new covenant that we are beginning to experience now, but it's not come in all of its fullness. We're still waiting. We're still waiting. So as we take this bread and wine in the end of our service, yes, we must look back to remember the cost of Calvary, but we must also look forward because we are waiting for the pattern of Sinai and for the promise of Isaiah to be fulfilled. And Jesus has promised it will. How do you know? Because of what he told John in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb. That's Jesus. He's the Lamb whose blood has been shed. The Lamb has come and his bride, that's Christians, every single one. His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed 
are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these words are the true words of God. That is what Exodus 24 is pointing towards. That is what Isaiah 25 was longing for. That is what Jesus in Matthew has said, the first fruits have come and one day it will be fulfilled. Great question is, are you invited to the wedding of the Lamb? On that day, men and women and boys and girls from every nation, language, tribe and people will be gathered on the mountain. I don't mean that literally. I mean it to remind you of the privilege of, Isaiah, uh, of Exodus 24. There won't just be a representative of some. Every single one who is clothed in the blood of the Lamb will draw near. And what we will enjoy will not just be a passing reminder with the small emblem of a piece of bread and a cup of wine of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We will celebrate in an unhurried feast what it means to be with him forever. Are you going to be there? You can only be there if you are part of the covenant people of God. How can you be part of the covenant people of God? By trusting in the one lamb who was slain that ended all the sacrifices. And you can become a part of that people this morning by doing exactly what the Jews did in Exodus 24. Repent of your sin and say to the Lord Jesus in your heart, maybe even before you leave to go home from the service, Jesus, I trust your death on the cross for me. Please, will you help me to follow you every day of my life?